0: I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John is saying, I've written these things so that you might come and see Jesus. And here you have this woman at the well and why is she so excited? What could cause this? She is, the, the, the light bulb has gone off in her mind and she is thinking, this is, is the one. This might be the Messiah. And that's what causes her to leave her water jar and to go back to the very people that wanted nothing to do with her, to say to them, you have to come with me. Andreas Kostenberger, who's a commentator who says a lot about the gospel of John, has this to say about uh, this woman and uh, another character that we've met, and that is the character of Nicodemus. And he says in these two, we've got a, a, quite the study of contrasts. With Nicodemus, think culturally here. He was a man, and not just a man, but as we'll see later, a Pharisee and so forth and so on. She was a woman. That was a, held a, a different societal impact at this time. As we continue in this contrast, you have Nicodemus being a Jew, and you have this woman who was a, a Samaritan. And recall last week when the woman had said, hey, you Jews worship in Jerusalem. We worship on on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Which one is right? Jesus had affirmed that salvation is from the Jews. So if if we're going to expect anyone to get this, to understand this, so far the deck is stacking in favor of Nicodemus, isn't it? We continue on. He points out that Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He had this title, whereas this woman, we don't even know her name. Continuing on, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, the ruling court of the people. This woman, by contrast, held no position of significance. He knew the scriptures, knew the Bible. She, meanwhile, was mired in the folklore and tradition of the Samaritan religious cult. We continue on. He was the epitome, the the paradigm of morality. Versus her being this immoral woman who was not even able to come with the rest of the townsfolk to draw water with them. Finally, you have Nicodemus coming at night, and she comes in broad daylight. So you've got these contrasts between Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And if all we had to operate on was this. If all we had to think about was who they were, you might think and you might conclude, well, surely Nicodemus is the one that's gonna realize who Jesus is and go out to tell other people that the Messiah had come. And yet, that's not at all what happens, is it? The one that gets it, the one that understands it, is not Nicodemus, but it's the Samaritan woman. Kostenberger goes on, he says this humanly speaking, Nicodemus towers over the Samaritan woman in every respect. Yet, John shows a dramatic reversal when it comes to spiritual understanding. I hope that encourages you this morning. That Christianity is not for the ivory tower. Christianity is not for the the most educated. Christianity is not for the the people that have lived the the best life to this point. Christianity is not a religion where you have to have lived a moral life before you can come to Jesus. Jesus. Christianity is a religion that calls everyone to faith in Christ. And when you get it, just like this woman, the joy that you feel will overflow into this expression where you have to go tell other people. And that's our first point this morning is this, rediscover the excitement of finding Jesus, just like this woman. Rediscover the the excitement of coming to faith in Christ. Uh, she goes and she tells them and she says, come and see, could this be the Christ? And the townspeople it says they went out of the town and they were coming to him. I mean, how persuasive must she have been? How, how convincing must she have been? This is a, a woman who, I mean, at, at this time, even just without all of the other factors that we've talked about, the testimony of women was not held in high regard at this time. So she was fighting an uphill battle from even just the, a, a neutral standpoint to get them to come and see. And yet that's exactly what happens. They come and see because of the joy that they see in her, the excitement that, that was overflowing so much that, that she thought, man, I have to share this with someone. And we know that what that's like. I, I trust that you've experienced that. And that escalates as we get older, right? Sometimes my, my twins will come to me and they'll be like, daddy, 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 what? I just saw a rabbit in the backyard. And for them, that's like the best moment of the day, right? It's like, okay, that's, that's good. Or they'll come to me and they'll, they'll tell me, I had cereal for breakfast. It's like, all right, congratulations, that's great. I found a peanut with three peanuts in the shell. That's like the pinnacle of their excitement level there. But that escalates as we get older, doesn't it? I, I got into college, right? Think about when you got your acceptance letter to college, if you did, and, and you wanted to go tell other people about this. I got into this school and, and I'm so excited about this. Or when you ask someone out and they, they say yes, right? I think I've mentioned this before, but I asked my wife out and she said yes. And I, I had asked her out for a group date that I had not, uh, I didn't have a group for. So she said yes. So that I was just, I was thrilled. So I went and ran up and down my dorm hallway and I pounded on the door and I told all the rest of the guys in my dorm. And I also said, you're going to come on my group date with me. So find a girl and let's go. Um, but I was just excited. She said yes. Or that. She agreed to marry me, and so forth and so on. It, 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 it escalates, right? The excitement, that feeling that we have to tell other people. Y'all, our relationship with Christ needs to be at the top of that list. That should never become old news, right? Like, if, if I showed up this morning so excited, that I came up to you, and I was like, guess what? My wife agreed to go out with me. You'd be like, okay, duh. Like, this is, this is good. Like, if you showed up and said my wife said no to going out with me, then, then we need to talk, right? We, we've got some issues here. The good news of Jesus being your savior never becomes commonplace, never becomes old news. We should always have this excitement that man, Jesus is my savior, he died for my sins so that I can be forgiven and rose from the dead so that I can live with him forever. That never becomes old news. That's always worth telling other people about. Psalm 51, David prays this, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Man, there's some people this morning that need to pray that, God, remind me of the joy of the good news that you have delivered my soul from hell restore to me the joy of my salvation. What does that look like? How do we do that? Well, let me ask you, what's the last bit of good news that you've experienced in life that you felt, man, I just have to tell other people about this. Other people have to know this. What's the last bit of good news? Let me ask you another question. If you were to receive $1,000 today, somebody were to just give you $1,000 because they're super generous, how many people would you call and tell? You'll never believe what happened to me. Somebody just gave me $1,000 today. Or maybe another one. What if someone gave you a brand new car today? You're walking out of church this, this morning and somebody was like, hey, you know what? I, I just got this car, paid it off full. It's, there's no balance on it at all, but I, I just realized I think you can use it more than I can. So here you go. Here's a brand new car and here's the title. I'm going to sign it over to you. How many people would you tell about that? How many people are you telling about your relationship with Jesus. Let me ask a more probing question. Does your relationship with Jesus make you more excited than that would make you? Are you more fired up about the fact that the eternal Son of God gave his life on the cross for you so that you can have a hope that you will live with him forever? Are you more fired up about that than you would be if someone was like, hey, here's the keys to a brand new Tesla. See, I fear the problem is we become so short-sighted. We become so fixated on the here and now that we forget the significance of the then and there and what Jesus has done to get us to the then and there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, describes some of that for us. The Apostle Paul says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, here it is, he emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Y'all, before we even get to the cross, think about this. The eternal son of God who had never experienced cold was born into the earth that he helped to create, and he experienced cold for the first time. The eternal son of God who never stubbed his toe had to learn to walk. The eternal son of God who had never felt any discomfort felt pain. And that's before the cross. That's before the betrayal. That's before the crown. That's before the whipping and the beatings. We get to the full picture of humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and we begin to remember everything that he's done for us. That's where the excitement of our joy over our salvation needs to come from. That's where our passion, that's where our, our, our love for Christ needs to flow from. Again, this woman leaves her water jar, leaves the cultural taboos and her fear of humanity and judgment behind and her anxiety and her shame. She leaves it all behind because she goes out to say, you guys need to come meet the one that I've met because I think he might be the Messiah. I think he might be the Savior. I just picture her with this, a smile that she couldn't wipe off her face no matter how or what anyone said to her might be. Because of the significance of the one that she's encountered. When we're excited about something, y'all, we feel like we have to tell other people. We have to share the good news. The Rangers won the World Series. Have I mentioned that yet? The Rangers won the World Series. That's good news. We want to tell other people about that. Are we telling people about Jesus? When I proposed to my wife and she said, yes, man, I couldn't wait to tell other people about that. When we found out we were having kids, we couldn't wait to tell other people about that. Just the joy, that, the, the excitement. And yet so often we don't, and I think we have to ask why. What are the threats to this contagious joy? Uh, three things, let me suggest to you. Number one, familiarity. Familiarity with the concept. W- w- there's, there's such a blessing to know the gospel. There's such a blessing to go to a, a, a church to, to hear from the word of God week in and week out. But if we're not careful, familiarity can breed what? contempt we can become comfortable with the good news that our souls have been saved from the perils of hell that's going to rob some of this excitement from us we have to fight against that we have to battle that through intentional thought about man what has jesus done for me preach the gospel daily to yourselves that's going to help you in that battle second threat that that we have is is the fear of men not just familiarity but the fear of men we're held back from sharing our excitement because we're worried that somebody's going to think that we're, we're weird, we're strange because we love Jesus this much. We're, we're worried that they're going to look at us funny or judge us or maybe let's ratchet it up a little bit. Maybe you're in a place, maybe your workplace, you've been told, hey, you can't talk about those things here. And so your thought is, man, if I share the gospel with this person at work, maybe I'm going to lose my job. So fear of men stifles our excitement over having discovered and found Jesus one more distance from conversion distance from conversion and this this goes along with familiarity but it's a little bit different because maybe distance from conversion is you're still excited about a lot you're excited about different things that you're learning as a Christian and that's great but man the gospel has kind of taken the back seat to you your thought is well yeah I know lost people still need to be saved but that's someone else's job for me, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more about, you know, the relationship of the Trinity to one another and I'm thinking about these deep theological issues. And that's fine and well, but man, as we grow, we can't leave the urgency and the excitement that we have over the reality that Jesus is our Savior and also potentially the Savior of the lost in your life and to say, man, I, I need to go and tell them about that. So we need to over, overcome familiarity. We need to overcome the fear of, of man and realize, man, at the end of the day, what costs more? Me suffering under some mocking, some derision, even if I maybe lose my job, but what does that person stand to lose if I don't share the gospel with them? Eternal life. I'll start there. So overcoming familiarity, fear of man, and that distance from conversion remembering all of us are commissioned to carry out the message of the good news of the gospel. Jesus, here in our text, back in John chapter 4, ever the teacher, seizes upon this interaction uh, in, in this woman's example to now instruct his disciples. Look at verse 31. He says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone... Brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the disciples are urging. The word is, is they're begging, they're pleading with him to eat. They're concerned for their their teacher, their rabbi. Hey, you need food, eat here. And Jesus' response is, "I, I have food. I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food, he goes on to say, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, the disciples are, are perplexed. They're going, Has it, did, did somebody bring him something to eat? You remember Nicodemus stayed on the physical plane. How can a man be born again? How can he crawl back in his mother's womb and be born a second time? Okay? This Nicodemus stayed on the physical plane. The, the woman at the well. Uh, hey, if you knew who it was offering this to you, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Where are you going to get this water? You don't even have a cup. She stayed on the physical plane. The disciples Rabbi, you need to eat. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. The disciples, did somebody bring him something to eat? They too stay on the physical plane. This is a common theme throughout John's gospel where you see Jesus trying to get people to that next level and, and yet they're staying right here. And yet here again, we see another example of the patience of our savior. As he continues to explain, he says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' relationship to the Father's will is a theme that's going to be drawn out and developed more in chapters 5 and 6 especially. We'll hit on that quite a bit. Just as we uh, think about them, a couple of previews here. John five thirty. Jesus is going to say this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was all about carrying out the will of the Father. We go on, and in John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says here, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Deuteronomy 8, 3 is also lingering in the background of what Jesus is saying here. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus is saying to the disciples and trying to help them to understand that there's a, a satisfaction that he finds that's greater even than the satisfaction that comes from a good meal. that there's a hunger that he has that's greater even than the hunger that you and I have right about now for lunchtime. that hunger and that satisfaction that he's after has everything to do with him carrying out the father's will. in john 6:27 he'll say plainly to you and I something similar. he's going to say don't work for the food that perishes. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. What is this food? What is this will of God? What is the the, the food that endures to eternal life, but to do the work that the Father has for us, to accomplish the will of the Father? Well, we see Jesus do that, and Jesus do that to perfection, because in John 19, 30, Jesus from the cross is going to issue his final words, and what does he say? What are his last three words? Well, in English, at least. It is finished. The work that the Father had given him, he'd carried to completion on the cross. But there's work that the Father has for you and I as well. This will that the Father has for us, what is it? Well, Jesus is gonna pivot here to begin to help us to understand that in verses 35 and 36. And it says this, look at your, your Bibles. It says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. So here again, Jesus pivots and he does so by uh, pointing to this expression that was known amongst them during this day. Do you not say that there's four months and, and then comes the harvest? the time between sowing and and harvesting was somewhere between that four to six month window depending on the crop. And so Jesus' point here is the general expectation when you think about farming, when you think about harvesting crops, is that there's a delay between when the seed is sown and when the crop is harvested or reaped. But Jesus is going to make a shift when it comes to the, the paradigm of sowing and reaping that he's calling us to. Look at what he says. He says, look though, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. In other words, the harvester's is already here. It's already ready. I'm here to do the will of the Father, and for Jesus, part of the will of the Father was to reap the harvest through his earthly ministry, but ultimately, through his death on the cross. But that earthly ministry that he began, the seeds that he began to sow there, listen, you and I still today are reaping those same seeds some 2,000 years almost later. That the harvest fields are white, they were white then, they're still white today, but here's the thing, we've got to look and lift up our eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. That wouldn't happen in, a, in the normal carrying on of this agrarian culture. The sower and reaper, usually they, they didn't rejoice together. The sower would rejoice when his job was done, but then four, four to six months later, the reaper would rejoice in the crop. But Jesus is getting ready and he's laying the groundwork and he's trying to get the disciples to understand, man, you're going to be sent out shortly here and you're going to be sent out and you're going to be sowing and you're going to be reaping and you're doing it together at the same time and you're going to be rejoicing together over the fruit that's being born. And so Jesus is beginning to help us understand what our doing the will of the Father is going to look like. That there's a harvest field for us to engage in. That the fields are white for harvest. And that's not just true of the disciples. Then it's true of you and I today. That the, the, the word that Christ had sown through the gospel is ripe for harvest for you and me today. Here's the thing, y'all. I don't know how many of us are in this room. 100, 115, 120, give or take. There are that many mission fields represented in this room. Different ones. Some overlap, sure. But my point is this all of us have a mission field to reach. All of us have a field that's white for harvest. But again, the key, like it was for the disciples, we have to lift up our eyes and see. Second point this morning is this identify your white fields. Identify your white fields. What are they? Where are they? Well, one that I'm gonna suggest that I think all of you in the room probably have is the white field that is your neighborhood. This is from a book that's called The Art of Neighboring. And in this book, he provides this diagram here, and you've got your house there in the middle. Maybe you live in an apartment complex, so just substitute your house for your apartment unit, and these are the, the nine or the eight units around your. Uh, your unit there, or your house. These are the eight houses closest to your house. And the challenge that the author of this book gives us is that we need to be getting to know our neighbors so that we will treat our neighborhood like the mission field that it is. And so he has this diagram here, and you'll see that each box has A, B, C. And the challenge that he issues to us, which I think is helpful, is this. Letter A is this. Do you know their names? Have you gotten to know the names of your eight closest neighbors in your neighborhood? Okay, letter B then goes to that next level. That involves having a a conversation with them. This goes beyond what you can observe from standing in your driveway and looking across the street and seeing that they drive a particular car or that they leave at the same time every day. This involves having that conversation where you find out, oh, this is what they do for a living. This is where they're originally from. This is how many kids they have. This is whatever. It's that kind of small talk, but you're getting to know more about them. That's that second level. That third level then is finding out more about them as it relates to Christ in the gospel. Do they believe in God? Do they go to church? Would they call themselves a a Christian? What does that even mean to them? What's their understanding of the gospel? That's that C level there. We're after getting to the C level with these neighbors. And so this is one mission field for you. Your neighborhood, your community, your complex for you to think about. That's a place that God has put you, that he hasn't put me, that he hasn't put the person sitting next to you. That's your unique field. You could replace this model here with your desk at work and think about the people closest to you, the nine offices closest to you. That doesn't so much work at my job. I think they're pretty well saturated with the gospel. I think they're, they're doing all right. But wherever you may be, think about that place. That's another mission field for you. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, for here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. It's possible in this immediate context, Jesus is thinking about the ministry of John the Baptist. As he prepared the way. And that some of those that the disciples were going out to call and bring to follow Jesus were those that had listened to John, that had even gone out and been baptized by John. And so here he's saying, there's this this symbiotic relationship. There's this partnership between those that are sowing and those that are reaping. And you get to enter into the joy of those that are sowing. Sometimes I will start the, the dishes for my kids and then they will come along and finish them. That's one of their greatest days is when they don't have to do all of the dishes. They get to enter into the joy of the work that I've already begun for them by starting the dishes. That's kind of the idea here. We are working together as a community here. Paul's going to write this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As he's looking out at a church that had become factioned into saying, I'm of this person and I'm of that person. Paul says this. He says, what is Apollos? In fact, I think I have it. Yeah, I do. What is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered. Here's the key. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. Here's the thing, y'all in your fields, some of you this week will have an opportunity to to sow, to plant. Others of you will have opportunities to water. Some of you may have opportunities to reap. The point is this, we we need to be mindful of where our field is, where they are, if we're going to do any of that. We need to be cognizant. We need to lift up our eyes and see. It's amazing to see so many people today walking around everywhere with their heads buried in their, their phones. Just eyes down, just wherever they're going, they're just here, right? Christians, we need to be careful that we're not doing that with our Bible and our church at the cost of missing the mission fields all around us. Our goal here at Compass Bible Church is not just to be the godliest community that we can possibly be and, and to have this inward focus that is all about how awesome it is on Sunday mornings and how great things are. Look, we want to do things with excellence, and we want to do that with excellence, and we want Sundays to be awesome. But if we're not doing the work of, of the ministry which God has called us to do, which if, if, if we're not identifying our fields throughout the rest of the week and going after lost souls with the gospel— then God needs to take us off and take us out. Because there's other good churches to go to that are doing that. And so that needs to be a hallmark of who we are. Not just that we gather together and love being here. I want you to gather together. I want you to love being here on the weekends. And we're going to feed and we're going to challenge and we're going to grow. But hey, we need to be mindful of the people that are all around us. Think about the people God's put in your life. Even this week, I want you to think about it this week. There's a a unique opportunity. You're gonna see your neighbors out putting up Christmas lights this week. They're part of the mission field God's given to you. Maybe your coworker this week is gonna ask you about what your plans are for the holidays. Don't be that guy that that's like you mean Christmas. Look at that as an opportunity. That's a mission field, that's an invitation. You may go check the mail at the same time that your mail carrier is there dropping off your mail. There's a mission field for you right there. You're going to have a choice at the grocery store between self checkout or going through a line with a cashier and talking to a person. Maybe your grocery store is your mission field this week. Maybe your coffee shop is your mission field this week. There's so many other ways you'll talk about that during small groups as far as what your mission fields are and how you can reach them effectively with the gospel. But we need to keep going. This is a Samaritan sandwich. Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the beginning, then the disciples, then the Samaritans come back. Look back at our text, verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed in him because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Many Samaritans that said believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Once more, again, how passionate and vibrant must this woman have been? You guys remember Billy Mays? Anybody remember Billy Mays? If you were up late or you stayed home from school in the 90s, you know Billy Mays because he was the infomercial guy. Oxyclean. anybody have Oxyclean because of Billy Mays in the room? Don't lie, some of y'all do, we do. But wait, there's more, right? Billy Mays was just excited about everything. He could sell whatever. He could sell something to someone who didn't need it. I didn't, that's the best illustration I could come up with on the fly. Billy Mays, right? He, if he did, and he's gone now, but if he was to do the, the 23andMe, I think it would trace back to this woman's DNA. Because for her to be able to go back to that town and convince them to come out and to see Jesus was, was quite the sales job, was quite the sales pitch. But notice their belief that begins with her testimony doesn't stay there. It progresses. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. Remember, these are Samaritans, and he is very evidently a Jewish rabbi. They did not like each other. And here, they're, they're so impacted by Jesus that they're saying, please stay with us. Please come have fellowship with us. The impact of Jesus with people is just phenomenal. We see it other places in the gospel. We saw the the initial disciples of John the Baptist want to know where Jesus was staying. We want to be with you. Or or think about Luke 24 and the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Once they figure out who Jesus is and then he leaves, they're going, oh man, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was with us? Wasn't there something about being with Jesus? There's something about being with Jesus. Jesus. And these Samaritans are recognizing that and they want him to stay. And then it says this, and many more believed because of his word. Because of his word. Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul says this, right? People need to to come to faith in Jesus. And he says, the good news is anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then what does he go on to say after that? But he says, how are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? And then he goes on to say this, and how are they going to believe without somebody what? preaching to them. They need to hear the word. Well, here you have the word incarnate preaching the word of salvation to these Samaritans, calling them to believe, and they believe because of his word. You remember John chapter two, Jesus flips the tables over and cleanses the temple, and then right after that, there's this side note that John makes here, and he says that many people believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus did not believe in their belief. We talked about that in John two, right? Because their belief was shallow. Their belief was, what can Jesus do for me? I want to be entertained. Maybe he's going to feed 5,000 again. Yeah, let's hang out with Jesus. John said, Jesus knew what was in the heart of every man. There's a difference here. And the difference is what they're believing in, why they're believing. They're not believing because they're entertained. They're not believing because they're overly impressed. They're not believing because of some benefit that they might get from hanging around Jesus. They're believing because the word of Christ is doing the work that it does, and that is to cause belief to take root in the people's lives, in the people's hearts. If you're here in, in you're in Christ this morning at some point in time, God did that in your life. The word of Christ transformed your life. You went from death to life. God caused you to be born again through a knowledge of Jesus. And the agent is the word. So as you and I think about going out into our harvest fields after we've identified them, what are we going out with? Personality? No. Strategy, technique, maybe some of that. But what's really going to change hearts? What's really going to change lives? It's our third and final point this morning. It's this. Trust the word of Christ to change hearts. Trust the word, to change hearts. We possess the life-changing word of Christ, which alone is able to save. That's why we preach this. That's why the Bible is central. This is the power to to change lives, to transform lives. It's not a personality, it's not a technique, it's not a strategy. Those things may help, but that's not where the power is. And so this transformation, how does it work? Well, sometimes it happens quickly. Look at that. We see that with the Samaritans. They come out from the town. They're having this conversation with Jesus, and they say, this is great. We're all in. We want you to stay with us. We believe. Other times, it happens more slowly, more gradually. I talked about the contrast of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman earlier. You know where Nicodemus is at the, uh, when, when the disciples are bearing the body of Jesus? He's with them. He's with them. We don't know when, but at some point in time, throughout that three-year ministry of Jesus, the light bulb went on for Nicodemus. What changed Nicodemus' heart? The same word that changed the hearts of these Samaritans. But sometimes it happens quickly. Other times it happens slowly. It was the power of Jesus' word in both the Samaritans' lives and the life of Nicodemus but God chose to apply the power differently in accordance with his perfect will. I hope that encourages you this morning. If you have lost in your lives and you've shared the gospel with them 100 times, shared 101, go back again. Because you don't know when, but you know how. The way God will transform that person's life is through the power of his word. And the reason is this, what the word of Christ does. What does the word of Christ do? A couple of thoughts here. Number one, it softens. It softens the hardest of hearts. A person that you might think, man, they are the most stubborn person I've ever met. They're no match for the word of God wielded by the spirit of God. Second, the word of Christ stands up to the most ardent skeptic. It's undefeated. It's undefeated. You're going to be spending some time in your community groups this week. You're going to read an article from uh, crossexamine.org on the reliability of the Bible. Listen, the, the, the word of God is unique in that it is trustworthy and reliable. The amount of manuscript evidence, we could go on and on and on and on. It will stand. You can trust it. It's undefeated and it won't be defeated. Third, the word of Christ can absorb the objections of the atheist. Similarly, Somebody who's not just skeptical, but antagonistic. The word is able to overcome those. Fourth, the word of Christ can penetrate the facade of self-righteousness. And I'm thankful for that, because that's what I needed. Can humble the prideful hearts. Fifth, the word of Christ can expose false gospels. If you got somebody in your life you're sharing the gospel with and they are mired in a cult, they're trapped in a cult, and you think, man, they're so deep in that, I don't know that they'll ever come to faith. The power is in the word. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the scriptures. Finally, the word of Christ can convince, it can persuade, and it can convict. That's the power. That's where the power resides to change people's lives. That leads to people being convinced of what the Samaritans are convinced here at the end behold he is the savior of the world the savior of the world a unique phrase there because why well the Samaritans are not the Jews so they're not going to say he's the savior of the Jews no they're understanding his mission is broader than just the Jewish people and thank God it is because unless you are a Jew here and maybe some of you in the room are but for the rest of us we're grateful that he is the savior of the world aren't we but you know what that means? He's the savior of your coworker. He's the savior of your family member. He's the savior of your spouse. He's the savior of your neighbors. He's the savior of your cashier. He's the savior of your mailman. We could go on and on and on and on. And the power that will transform their lives is contained in the word of God, the scriptures. In a couple of years, again, that, that harvest field, I want you to, to envision that, that farm off the toll road. It's going to be gone. People are going to be taking selfies. That's a harvest field lost. It's a stewardship forsaken. Church, make sure that we're not going to lose our harvest field. Make sure that we're not going to forsake our stewardship. There's a joy in finding Christ that compels us into the harvest field with the word that truly can transform any life. As God so sees fit, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the Word of God. We thank you that the power is there. We thank you that the power is not in us being a good enough salesperson or having the right personality or whatever it may be that that you can save even sometimes and, and thankfully in spite of ourselves, in spite of the way that we can distract or, or even derail at times. God, I pray specifically for those in this room that are represented by those that are here who uh, haven't bowed the knee to Christ yet, who have not yet come to faith in Jesus. Lord, that that they've heard the gospel over and over and over and over again. God, I pray that you would do the work, that you would open their eyes to see their need for Christ and that you would cause them to become another one of the, the white fruit of the harvest to be reaped. God, we are so thankful for the gospel. Help us to even right now in in this season, appropriately so as we think about Christmas, as we think about the birth of Jesus, as we think about the eternal son of God taking on flesh for us, God, help us to remember the significance of the why in all of that. It's not for music and peppermint mochas and all of the lights and everything else. Those are just trappings. The, The point is he did that in order that we would be saved. As one of the pastors that I heard growing up said so often, the wood of the cradle means nothing without the wood of the cross. And that's the significance for us as well because it changed everything for our lives eternally. And we are so thankful for that. So we praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.